Hi and welcome to Starting Out. I'm Shereen Patek from Digiday and I'm here with Richard Edelman for a very special Riviera edition of Starting Out. Hi Richard, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's now 40 years since I joined Edelman as a 23-year-old. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, tell me about joining Edelman as a 23-year-old. What was it like sort of walking in those doors and saying, okay, now it's my turn? Well, uh, hardly. So <laughs> my dad um, actually called me in uh, March of that year, and uh, I was all set to go as a junior product manager uh, to Playtex. And he said that DDB Advertising had made an actual offer to buy Edelman, and he didn't want to sell, and he wanted me to come to Edelman for a year and see what it was like, and so would I come to Edelman? And so I said, okay. <laughs> and um, then... Did you feel like you... Well, I, I look, it, it was, you know, a little bit of obligation and, you know, family pride. And then um, also I had a two-month vacation planned with some attractive lady, and, and then... Um, I, I, I was like w literally one week out from graduating from B school and he called and said, well, you know, we've uh, actually got a new client and uh, you have to start the day after you graduate from school. <laughs> so I got no vacation either. So I learned what it was like to be in a family business. Um, 40 years. That's a long time. What has been the most surprising thing to you about the company and how it's changed in that time that you just would not have expected? Well. First, um, I joined when we were $6 million, and um, we were in five or six locations, and now we're nearly a billion dollars, and um, we're in 65 locations, and the most surprising thing is but that- that wasn't surprising, because you knew that we were going to grow. Well, I knew, that, I knew that we might grow, but I didn't know we would grow that much. But also, we've done it as a family business. We're the only ones of size who are still private, independent, and family-held. and. All the other PR firms sold out to WPP or Omnicom or whatever on the basis of the theory of, of synergy. And my father and I always maintained that um, actually we would be better off being entrepreneurial, being able to expand into adjacent areas, um, which is exactly what we've done, digital, creative, entertainment and experiential. And we would have been choked by the um, holding companies. First of all, they demand high margins. Second, they, particularly in a recession, um, they force big job layoffs, and we don't do that sort of thing. Um, we're, we're really interested in long-term growth. Being independent is a huge part of your story, and I, think, and I actually find it interesting now that independence for the few agencies and companies that are left that are independent, it's something that they do want to talk about more and more. Do you think the holding company is, is dead? Do you think the co is, it's absolutely over? I think that there are very well-managed ones um, that are very committed to their brands and are looking to diversify into the fast-growing areas of um, kind of digital build and advisory to compete with the consulting firms. And then there are others that are financial machines mm -hmm. and they don't add that much value to their parts. Mm -hmm. um, so. I disagree fundamentally with horizontality and the idea somehow of bespoke units for, for clients and pick the best talent and just sort of shop. Was the economies of scale argument mostly a myth then when it came to, well, we could, we could do more things, we could buy media more cheaply, we could do all these things just cheaper because that's... I think economies of scale work up to a point, meaning that there is definite advantage to us, for instance, of having a place 
where we have 29 countries and we can serve clients anywhere. Um, but beyond a certain size, then you arguably get diseconomies of scale because you're slow and, and bureaucratic. And so I like to think that we're always at the sweet spot. I'm sure sometimes we're too big and sometimes we're too small, but um, we make decisions quickly. Let's say that. Um, let's go back to the last 40 years first. Yeah. Um, when, was, when was the point at which I think you sort of felt that, okay, because I think there's a point in any leader's life that you end up in like, okay, now I am the leader. I'm responsible for these people and I'm responsible for the people that work here. I'm yep. responsible for their well-being. I'm responsible for their jobs. So I have to, I have to make this happen. Do you remember a defining moment that sort of comes to mind? Well, in a way, uh, I've been doing this um, responsibility thing for a while. So I was made manager of the New York office at 27. Uh, you know, I, I was literally, you know, three or four years out of school and the two prior managers had flopped and my father said, well, you know, I'll make you in charge temporarily while I find someone <laughs> decent. And, you know, we won Fuji photo film for the Olympics and then we won some pharmaceutical work and we were, you know, within... Were you scared? Were you worried? I, no, I ne I don't, no. I'm not scared type of person. Um, I... Maybe, like maybe, maybe I went to the gym more often <laughs> so I could sleep. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I slept in the office a bunch and did proposals and, you know, worked hard. Um, I think the average age of the people in the office was 28. We were sort of an, uh, an early day startup. Yes. <laughs> but um, it, it was really the making of me. You know, you had to rely on yourself because we started with 12 people in New York and we were up against vast companies, Burson, Marstell, or Hill and Nolden with 300 people and we yeah. just had to out-hustle them yeah. and out-think them. So, um, and then I got put in charge of Edelman Europe um, about 10 years later. <clears throat> and again, I had to figure it out because we were going backwards and we lost half our business in the UK with you know, privatizations of steel and dairy. And okay, you just have to deal with it and, and recruit in people who are able to attract brand business or crisis business and just be relentless about saying, we're a different kind of company. So. Um, and so then I went on to be CEO. Yeah. Do you have an anecdote from ago. the time when things were kind of, you know, going, the one thing you know about this business is it's always up and down. Do you remember an anecdote from a time where it was down and it felt hard and you had to figure it out? Well. One um, that especially that you think of even now. I would say it was hard when um, we installed a new uh, financial system and it didn't work and we couldn't send our bills out for three months. That was hard. And so my people, my people, really and I was, I was, a C I was the CEO for about eighteen months, and people looked at me. God, yeah, his father sure picked the right guy, <laughs> <laughs> who picked the wrong CFO. Um, anyway, we got our way through that, and um, we don't borrow money it's just for things like that. We just maybe I don't know. That's that's definitely in my head. Getting um, through those three months. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or when the dot-com thing imploded and uh, we went from 80 people in tech in New York to eight mm -hmm. in about six months and had $3 million in bad debts and that was pretty ugly. Um, but again, these are good life lessons about how long to make credit available <laughs> and things like this. <laughs> what is the hardest part of your job today, you think? We are really in a process of massive um, evolution of PR 
historically was, I would call and pitch you a story. I'd have a relationship with you, we had some degree of trust, I understood what you were looking for, um, and <clears throat> the journalism platform is halved, literally. The number of qualified reporters, um, and, and, I, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, who are able to do their job in, in, a, in, in, in the way that they're used to. You know, at some of these places um, that are sort of pop-up uh, new media, they're expected to file eight stories a day. Now, how many quality stories can you do? You can't even get bathroom breaks in some of those places. And, and so um, the idea of our distribution channel being mm -hmm. choked off has made me, as I started thinking of this more than five years ago, because I saw this coming. Mm -hmm. um, we had to be strong in digital so that we would set up digital and social communities. And, but we also, over time, have to help clients go direct to the end user of information. If you like Trump or you don't, he's a genius in one way, which is 55 million social followers who actually believe that he is a media channel because he's authentic, he's fast, he answers questions, mm -hmm. and you know, he's got another story every day. Yeah, um, and they're so there to amplify everything he's doing. Correct. It's a built-in platform. Correct. So, he is a, so that's something that companies have to learn from. I also believe that we're in a time now where government is paralyzed and, and or corrupt in various parts of the world. So business has to step up and step forward. So brands, in a way, are the new democracy. And so that's why we are pushing our clients to do something, not just talk. So when CVS gets out of cigarettes two years ago mm -hmm. and writes off $2 billion in revenue, that was a big throw. Yeah. But their preference doubled almost doubled. I mean, it really became the preferred drugstore brand. That's a big, smart move. Yeah. I want to talk about purpose. I want yes. to talk about trust. Yes. But before that, going back to sort of the implosion that happened in media and, and, the, and the effects it had across the ecosystem, how much was sort of the rise of the platforms, the rise of Facebook, the rise of Google to blame? Well, we have trust data that indicates that, um, in fact, uh, the decline of trust this past year in media is totally linked to the decline of belief in social platforms. That in the US, UK, France, and Germany, we're in the mid to low 20s in trust in social media. Um, at the same time, there's a whole group of people who have walked away from mainstream media. Half the people in the United States no longer read mainstream media because they think it's biased, elitist, or it makes them upset. Mm -hmm. So they're otherwise informed. So I think the challenge for those of us in communications is how to help you reporters do the best possible job with graphics or video or mm -hmm. something, but also to help you by telling you the truth. You know, one, that's, the truth is a big word, mm -hmm. but I think companies that are smart are going to realize that the better discussions are those with two sides. And that PR should move away from advocacy alone, that we should try to inform the discussion. I think in the next phase, um, education is our goal, not advocacy. As, as sort, of, sort of mainstream, especially news publishers, continue to see a decline in readership, there has been the effect of lifestyle, quote unquote, publishers going up. As people don't want to read things that make them upset, they're okay reading things about puppies, they're okay reading Same. things about cats. You see, and I think the skim is a great example. Or they're okay reading about it in a very different tone and language, potentially, arguably, dumbed down because it makes you less upset. So there is more media out there. It's just 
very different? Well, in fact, consumer-generated content, um, people's videos and whatever, is that which is being favored by Facebook on the basis of that's what people want. So I do think over time Facebook and, and other platforms are going to have to find ways like um, the Snap Stories um, to give more room for mainstream media. Mm. That's, by the way, a very clear sign in our research that we've just completed for CAN, mm -hmm. which gets into the low trust in social media. So why? Well, one is fake news, and the other is this sense of violation based on lack of data privacy. Mm. And that, that uh, so I was at a lunch today, and of the five companies, um, one is, uh, two of them are retailers and they're selling their data mm -hmm. to others mm -hmm. and they're buying their data from others. Yeah. They're probably exchanging data with others. These aren't in Europe? And, nope. These, well, th these are American companies oh, largely. Okay. Um, I know GDPR <laughs> prevents a bit of that, but the reality is they have first person data, but then they want to have, they don't necessarily identify you as you, but you as a type of person, you know, 30 years old, whatever. Um, and um, then they want to have a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And what are your likes and dislikes? Okay, fair enough. But I think what the consumer is asking for is explicit permission at each phase and at each stage. That privacy, privacy is not something you have to opt into, privacy, it's the default. Privacy and convenience are somehow seen as a, a trade-off, but I think now we have gone to the point where too much has been assumed by brands. And this problem with social media has now metastasized into a broader question about the marketing ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So even things like cookies or loyalty programs or you know, location-based uh, data. So you're in the store in you know, Bloomingdale's or something and they say, well, you, you're, you're at the perfume section so you're more likely to go to the hair section next or whatever it is. Okay, but you should be able to decide whether you want that. That should be explicit. The consent has to be explicit, whereas Absolutely. we've basically made the default that you've consented. Correct. And that now is up for grabs. I don't think that that's so anymore. What do you think sort of GDPR and that, which is moving into that space, do you think that we are heading towards that becoming maybe a global standard, at least beyond going beyond Europe? Because I think the brands are going to have to lead the charge in the United States. I don't think that in a Trump administration you're going to see regulation. You might see it in some states, California. Um, but the, it's going to be a two-part. One government, led by government, the other led by brands, and they'll meet somewhere in between. Yeah. And smart, sorry, and smart brands will uh, take the offense here. And brands will have to. It's going to have to be the brands who... Well, that's what the, the study says. The study says specifically 70% say, I expect the brands to fix fake news. 70% say they expect them to fix it on data privacy. Let's talk about purpose-driven. I think you're hearing the word a lot. Um, I just spoke to uh, HPC and Tony Lucio on this podcast last week. We talked a lot about it. He spoke to me about it again this morning. Yeah. This is definitely something on people's minds and it's something you've talked about a lot. What does it mean to sort of tell a brand, okay, you need to be purpose or you need to stand for something. You need to talk the talk and actually make it be authentic and real. I even think it goes beyond purpose uh, to the point of changing your business model. I think purpose may be the intent, but the idea of, it's sort of on a spectrum, you, you move from doing things for philanthropic purposes, then doing things for marketing purposes, 
Now it's into the business itself. So the why that Unilever is doing the sustainable living plan or Antonio and HP are so interested in diversity and inclusion is it's good for the business. They're getting better results by sourcing better and by getting better talent. And, and so the essence of the marketer now needs to be in a way the person pushing change mm -hmm. and making sure that he or she is the bridge into the real world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that the first audience is not Wall Street. Yeah. The first audience is actually the customer, customer. And that the customer deserves to be heard and that there'll be platforms for the customer to be heard on. Yeah. Um, and it's a uh, talk with, discuss mm -hmm. with as opposed to talk at. Yeah. So it's not like a parent-child, it's, it's, it's two peers two. talking to I each other. I think there has been, a, to that point, I think there has been sort of a rise in CMOs and marketers in general realizing that customer centricity needs to be, they need to talk directly to their customer. And they've often left that to others to do or just yes. not do at all. Right. So then what does, how does sort of, you know, Edelman play a part in, in helping clients do that? The fact is that um, we now have at Edelman, this broader rubric of communications marketing. We've added 550 creatives, planners, paid people. We've got another, I don't know, five or 600 digital people. So 25% of our population is not PR. Mm -hmm. um, and we've geared ourselves to be primary agency partner to client, mm -hmm. as and when. Or we can also partner with ad agencies, digital firms. Okay. But we want to be involved where clients are acting with certainty to quote our new tagline, um, because we believe that action is of necessity at the moment. It is not just going to be a kind of frilly, you know, hire a celebrity and, you know, get that person to sort of carry the day. Yeah. No. Um, what are we going to do that is addressing a social problem or what are we going to do that's addressing a marketplace problem and be the different one? Talk to me more about um, your media practice, sort of building that out. Um, what was sort of the conversation that you were having about, we need to do, we're going to do media, this is how we're going to build it out. Because I think that's sort of, I think that is definitely the one place that you're seeing companies, if the ones that are evolving, move towards, that we have to offer a better suite of services and meet the client where they need us, not for something so we don't. we are deeply interested in building out channels for our clients that go direct to end user of information. So we have a unit called collaborative journalism and we're not trying to replace mainstream media or um, you know, born digital media, no. Ours is supplemental. But for industries that are not getting much coverage, the dairy industry, um, we'll tell stories about sustainable practices by dairy farmers mm -hmm. using cow poop in order to power tractors or mm -hmm. things like this, then go to um, you know, eco-bloggers or others and get some traction and then promote it in Facebook mm -hmm. to our constituency of, you know, young moms who theoretically are buying milk. And you're handling media spend also for clients. We are indeed. In that part of it. Okay. But, and it tends to all be social. Okay. Um, and, you know, we don't pretend to be Mindshare or something. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, in our niche, uh -huh. capable and smart about, um, but, but ours is earned at the core, social by design, mm -hmm. We have a four-quadrant mentality about the media, so that's mainstream, it's shared, it's owned, it's paid, 
it's a bit of a Venn diagram, so there's some, you know, moving around. But stories can originate in any of those quadrants mm. and move whichever way. No interest in doing kind of the, the Group M, Mindshare kind of work? No interest in going there? I, I don't think that Edelman's core constituency is interested in us being a, a media company. I mean, they have big scale purchasing through the holding companies. That's an area of great expertise. And just like our, I, I'm not interested in replicating the creative of the uh, ad agencies. Ours is different. It's, it's ideas that start movements. It's ideas mm -hmm. that stimulate action. Mm -hmm. um, how much does, does brands kind of talking more about in-house worry you? So Unilever has its 20 plus mm -hmm. production studios, et cetera. Um, I see that um, our area of service is different that we're not in the business of making TV ads or whatever. You know, by and large, our, our creative is fast twitch. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, sometimes employee testimonial or influencer testimonial. We're doing a lot of work, by the way, with influencers. Um, ah. and, and all of a sudden, it's, it's you know. Been, it's been a week for a little bit of influencer bashing. Yeah, but, no, no, but, but, bashing. No, no, but I, think, I think actually what Keith Weed said earlier in the week is, is completely correct. Mm -hmm. We've got to have an ecosystem that is trusted. Mm -hmm. And unless the numbers are corroborated, um, then you can't be sure mm -hmm. that you're really talking to a real influencer. And, and so uh, let's, let's have some rules. And, and let's have companies like Unilever step up and, and great, let's, go, let's do and that. And it feels like if a reckoning has come to lots of other parts of the digital ecosystem, why not this? Absolutely. Um, in part, it is the most applicable part of, of, of what we do because it's, it, it, it deals with, with PR. Yeah. But, and fraud is a real issue in, that, in, in influencer marketing. Well, it's correct. It's actually well Correct. Well and, and, and we, you know, just as we wouldn't deal with, you know, dodgy media, yeah. we're not going to deal with dodgy influencers. As consultancies have come into this space, agencies, other companies have also moved into consulting. And I know consulting is actually quite a bit of what you do. Um, how is, where do you sort of see that whole thing shaking out? I think there's a lot of people who are worried about the extreme presence that Accenture, PwC, Deloitte have this year. A lot of people are talking about it. And it's coming at a time where the usual presences of at least the traditional creative agencies seems to be less this year. Well, People are worried. So we do have some consulting mm -hmm. um, business. Um, it tends to be around what a company should do in crisis um, or how a company um, deals with sustainability issues. Um, things where those of us who come from a PR background have a comparative advantage. We've hired in a guy, Richard Worgen from um, Phillips, who's an ex-CMO, who's going to try and take us into an earlier phase of, of kind of marketing channels, um, product selection, product development. Um, we're not trying to compete with McKinsey or Accenture. We want to be smart people who can advise mm -hmm. the C-suite on the direction of their business. Do you think McKinsey and Accenture are trying to compete with you? I think at the highest end, they'd like to be in crisis management or whatever. I'm not worried about that. I think we do very well with Samsung, Wells Fargo, and United, and a bunch yeah. of others, and we have a good record at that. That's good. What are you most excited about? We've talked a lot about what you're worried about or what you're not worried about. What are you excited about? 
I'm excited about the prospect of actually changing marketing. I know this sounds a bit presumptuous, but I believe that marketing is no longer about selling. I think marketing is about relationships, and, and um, we deeply understand advocacy and influence, and the whole basis of a relationship-based business is trust, mm -hmm. and we know that upside down, and we are learning more about it as to brand trust of a country. Mm -hmm. So brand Germany, a place where the company's headquarters. There's also an aspect of industrial, you know, like by which sector you're in. So mm -hmm. tech versus health, et cetera. And there's also an aspect of the company. You know, what are the company's values? I think it's, you know, you can't sell brands on value and, and product function alone. There's, there's something more about, um, do I trust this company and, and do I have the same values? And I think I was struck by what you said about in the absence of our government structures failing around us, someone has to step up, and it is those organizations. It's either shadow organizations, like Sleeping Giants, who are doing it in their way, or it's organizations, organizations. Well, again, I think that brands have this moment in time where, as with Heineken speaking up and saying, have a beer and discuss Brexit. Mm -hmm. That's hugely useful, and their sales pop 10%. So. And, and, and similarly, um, in service companies, REI, which won a titanium here two years ago for the Opt Outside program, that was a major statement about how to treat employees. To close stores the day after Thanksgiving, oh my God, the biggest shopping day? That's crazy, right? No, it's actually it's amazing. Right. It's amazing. It's, it's doing something. We have time for a few rapid fire questions. Yeah. All right, blockchain. I need to learn more. Sounds like a good way to get paid. Hysteria, though. I'm very, I'm very, I have blockchain hysteria watch on me all week. VR? So I did it at the uh, Facebook uh, beach last year, oh, and it made me sick. <laughs> me <laughs> too. I was like, whoa, I'm <laughs> not good, I'm not good on dizziness. I, but, but anyway, I think in the next one, I, I'll, I'll do a race car or something else. I can't look down. You can't look down. Um, machine learning? So... I don't worry about it obsoleting PR. I want it to make our team faster and smarter. Rosé, hate it or love it? Hate it. Same. Beer guy. Me too. All Good. right. All right. Richard Edelman, thank you for being on Starting Out. Thanks for having me.